Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Reading Party Podcast with Megan and Lexi. This episode continues our season looking at stories inspired by or set in ancient Egypt. Some of the material includes themes of violence or sexual assault. It is not suitable for under-18s. We hope you have your favourite beverages and snacks ready to go, because we've got our teas and are ready to start spilling the tea on our latest ancient story. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Reading Party podcast. We are kind of treading new waters here today. For those who don't know, Lexi and I are both pretty enthusiastic gamers. I think different game genres generally, but we both game, we both enjoy it. And we thought that given we're doing Egypt this season, it would be a good time to introduce you all to our bizarre love of gaming, historical games, and all things exciting in that particular field. So we are going to be talking about Assassin's Creed Origins, and we have the marvellous Dr. Christian Casey, Egyptologist, gamer, all-round nice guy with an impressive beard, here to join us and to talk about the Egyptological side of Assassin's Creed. So Christian, thank you for coming. It's nice yeah, to, glad to see be here. you. My beard doesn't get enough acknowledgement in my life, so I sincerely appreciate that. And the fact that I play video games instead of doing my work sometimes, I don't think that gets enough appreciation. Well, the first time I think I ever met you was at ASOR, and I know that I, which is an academic conference for those who don't know what ASOR is, and I came up to you because I saw your paper on Assassin's Creed Origins and found it really interesting and wanted to interview you on my YouTube channel. So you will forever, in my mind, be married to Assassin's Creed. Yeah, in real life too. So I wrote two papers about it. One of them is more just kind of that conference talk. I just wrote it up as, you know, in prose and put it on my website. And then there's another one that's like an actual proper peer-reviewed paper. I have looked up where it is before starting this. It's in the Journal of Near Eastern Archaeology. I have it saved as a PDF on my computer. That's why. Thank you. Thank you, Lexi. I'm glad you remember. I'm terrible at those kind of things. Yeah, so I've, I wrote and spoke quite a bit about it, and I think it's actually really important. I'm actually doing a workshop on Friday, as I mentioned, about like AI images, and I'm bringing in a lot of the stuff I learned from that paper into that as well. So when talking about one of the big things that comes up in academia all the time is whether something is real or not, and academics by nature, we're seekers of truth. So we really believe in the importance and priority of factual truth and accuracy and all those things. And I think what I always try to do with this is challenge the notion that that's the only way to think about things because i think a lot of what gets missed in that is the ability to really just to play with ideas and to inhabit a totally different place and imagine what it's like so yeah i think assassin's creed did a really great job of allowing me as an egyptologist to visit this place that i spend so much time reading and thinking about and kind of see it all around me in an immersive environment And I think the same thing is true for things like archaeological illustration, reconstruction. You know, there are these wonderful, in Germany, we have quite a few of these like medieval villages where everyone lives as a medieval peasant and they build all the buildings by hand and stuff like that. I think that's sort of undervalued in terms of how it can inform the way we think about the past. So It's a much more kind of experiential way of 
learning or experiential way of experiencing something that just sounds bizarre but i think like you get what i mean it's much more immersive and even if it's it's a computer game and it's not vr so you're not like walking through it still being able to like see the different buildings and hear all of the sounds of people talking off in in the background and and animals and marketplace noise and that kind of thing i think does give a very very different impact to if you're reading about it in a book even if it's like a fiction book you still get much more of an immersive experience i think and this yeah. this question of of what is true and what is accurate is something that lexi and i have wrestled with between us before i think it came up several times in season one because something that she values quite a lot is accuracy in terms of when you're drawing from source material actually use the damn source material don't kind of read it once and then go off into your own flight of fancy and i think that's definitely a very valuable way of looking at it but something that I was taught as an undergraduate because I took a, a film and media class with a classicist. And the way that he does it is to look at less what is accurate and more how is this being used to create something new, which I think can also be a, a really useful way of, of looking at these things as well. Yeah, even just connecting it to, to fiction writing or to film, all of us regularly engage with these totally imagined scenarios. And we do it by choice. Human beings have done it for as long as we could possibly guess humans have sat around and told stories and that the fact that we are so primed to engage with this and do it and feel good about ourselves and feel like we're we're using our time in a maybe not the most productive way but in a way that we value you have to ask like what is that doing for us and i think this like stepping into fictional scenarios you actually do you learn things that way and it's not the same as factual information and they should usually be kind of kept separate. We should say what is imaginary and what is real and what we know and what we don't know. But to over-prioritize factual accuracy is to create a sort of like tyranny of truth value where you're not allowed to think outside of things that you know. And then you can very easily get stuck in these in these ruts, you know, which happens in Egyptology all the time. But I think I mean, maybe it's because I'm working on an article right now that uses a lot of, I'm, I'm like doing a deep dive into like nostalgia, which is something I never thought I would do. But it's interesting because I, I guess like the, the paper I'm working on really talks about, you know, how can games evoke a sense of nostalgia, both for the player and for the characters within the world. And it's really interesting because I guess I didn't apply this lens to any other game beyond the one I'm working on for hopefully what will eventually become obvious reasons. But I sort of applied that to this game. And I said, well, I think one of the things that helps me give it a pass and the other Assassin's Creeds that are like in great ancient settings, but also not completely accurate are the fact that even if it's not 100% right, like as a historian, it still kind of makes me like nostalgic in a way where I'm like, but I would still go there. I would still want to be in this world that they're presenting me. Just like you know, characters in the game might feel nostalgia for a certain period or thing as well. So it's a really interesting lens that I've started to look at this game. So I'm like, yeah, you know, this is an Egypt that is not accurate 100%, but that doesn't stop me from like sitting at my TV being like, I want to go there right now because this feels like homey and wonderful. So um, yeah, I was going to pick up on that, the word nostalgia and this connection with a sense of home, mm -hmm. because for no one alive today is ancient Egypt. I'm, of course, there, there are Egyptians and Egypt, like the country of Egypt is their home, but Ancient Egypt is is not a place that still exists, except in like little tiny pockets that you can find. 
So to connect that to a place where people actually lived as a scholar, that's really important because it's very easy to forget that these people actually lived there. They actually spoke this language. So I'm, I'm a language person. And in discussion of linguistics, you'll often get off on these really weird tracks where there's a huge debate about the pronunciations of various Coptic letters and what these things would have sounded like. And a lot of Egyptologists will get really excited about these like super exotic possibilities. Like you can use a linguistic argument to say that this particular word sounded like or whatever. And it's like, yeah, but, but people actually spoke this language every day, right? So like the super interesting exotic thing that's exciting to linguists is probably not the thing that would have been relatable and sensible to people who actually had to communicate with that language. So you can, you can very easily be totally focused on all the facts and actually end up in a sort of flight of fancy because you're not grounding yourself in a sense of like, hey, people actually lived here. This was their whole life. They weren't space aliens. They were, they were normal people. For sure. Well, I mean, so I do want to get into Megan have, recapping this for people who don't know the game, but there is one all important question that I actually want to tie to sort of what we're currently talking about that I'll sort of ask first before Megan recaps the game for us. But I think one of the arguments that I've come up against that has kind of not stumped me, but I haven't figured out like how I'm going to even address this in the article I'm working on, but it was put to me like, can a person truly feel quote unquote homesick or nostalgic for a place that they've never been to or seen? And like, I want to say yes, because if you study it enough, if you see it enough or like you identify with it enough, I'm like, yes, I think I can based on like, oh, this is my passion. I study it. So like, I haven't been there and I never will be, but like, I still am. But what do you think? My answer would be, why not? Yeah. I don't see why that wouldn't be possible. I mean, these, these emotions aren't, they aren't magic. They're made of something. And if you spend enough time really caring about something, you will develop a, an affection for it. And then that will create all the feelings that come along with that. You don't have to have actually spent time there. And you think even just to like, to ground it in real world terms, I've definitely traveled to places exactly once and that place will appear in a dream and I'll wake up kind of longing to go back to that place wherever it was. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think I it's quite similar. Really possible. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I would agree. Definitely. Although it's a bit harder to say, because I mean, right, that comes down to the, the basis of like, I traveled to many places once or I spent five minutes in it and I miss it for like an inexplicable reason. But like, yet I've been there, right? So I'm kind of like, I've never been to like ancient Greece, but when I play like Assassin's Creed Odyssey, I'm like, oh my God, like this is home. I want to go there. I miss this. And I'm like, I, I've never been to that version of Greece. Like, what am I talking about? But yeah, emotions got to come from somewhere. And I'm like, I'm sure it's like half scientific, half just like people, but yeah, it's a really interesting angle because it's screwing with my paper right now. So that's why I'm just like, ah, how do I deal with this? But Megan, would you please recap this game for us? Just so for people who, you know, haven't played it, they kind of know what we're about to really dig into. I absolutely will. So you play as Bayek, who is he's called a Magi, which seems to be some kind of, I'm not entirely sure, like an assassin in the pay of the crown who's supposed to protect everyone. Is like the sense I get from the game. So that's a question for Christian later on. So you, you, you play as, as Bayek and, and you find out that his son was murdered by a shadowy order of people secretly controlling Egypt, which is a like a recurring theme throughout the Assassin's Creed games. For those who haven't played them, there's a secret order of, of someone that you have to essentially hunt down each one and, and kill them. 
And in Bayek's case, you're hunting them down to avenge the death of your son. And there's this weird like feather motif. Each time he kills one of the bad guys, you have this hallucination. He's in this dark place, which I'm assuming is like some kind of underworld realm. And he has this white feather and he touches them with the feather and then they kind of disintegrate into nothingness. So that's another question for Christian later. And running alongside that, you also have his wife, who is called Aya, who's pretty damn cool. And she is also working to avenge her son's death, but also at the same time working for Queen Cleopatra, which is interesting. She has a fascinating British accent. Don't know why Cleopatra is British when no one else that I found in the game is British. Super weird. Yes, I know that she's Greek, but none of the other Greeks have British accents. It's... It was, it was a thing. She's, she's highly educated and sophisticated. She can't have an American accent. Well, yeah, but... Who would believe that? She could have a Greek accent, though. She could, yeah. M maybe. Maybe. Anyway, that was weird. But Aya is working for Cleopatra, and alongside the whole avenging son's death, you've also got the quest of putting Cleopatra on the throne. So it's set during the, like, Ptolemaic reign, and you've got Ptolemy the however, like, fourth, whatever. I don't know the numbers. He's a Ptolemy. He's, he's on the throne somewhere. Cleopatra is trying to take it back over and you have intrigue with the Caesars and all the, the people doing the political maneuvering stuff. And then surprise, surprise, Cleopatra becomes Pharaoh and very unceremoniously dumps you. And you're very upset, not surprisingly, because you've done all this stuff to help her. And she's like, no, I'm done. Sorry. Thank you for your help. Your assistance is no longer required. So then you and Aya, Bayek and Aya break up, which is sad but absolutely something I'm sure most people saw coming. And Aya goes on to form the Order of Assassins that kind of follows the Assassin's Creed games down through time. And Bayek continues to be an assassin and he's not a Magi anymore. Magi? Magi? I'm probably saying it wrong. But he's not one of those anymore. He goes off and kills bad guys. And that's, that's kind of where it ends. And that was much, much faster than my normal summary. I'm sure I missed a bunch of stuff. Now but you're, you're in a nutshell. That's the plot. That's you're, yeah, no, yeah, that's pretty good. Pretty... Also, because like it kind of helps that like you don't get bogged down by the fact that you get way into like the lore of the game series. Because if you got into like the modern day stuff, everyone would be like, okay, now I'm we'd confused. be here for a long time. Yep. So good job. Yeah, that that's mostly what happens. Thank you. And it takes about thirty hours to like play out this very simple sounding storyline, but it's never that easy. Yeah, you know, you're you're basically inserted into Julius Caesar, like it's the it's the Caesar and Cleopatra stuff. And I don't know if we need spoiler warnings. I mean, this game's been out for I don't know six years at this point. But the YouTube video I made about this, I got some like really heated, angry comments because I pointed out in my video that Aya assists in assassinating Julius Caesar, and there's like a super angry like, you have to put a spoiler warning before you say that she assassinates Julius Caesar. I was like, man, if you didn't know about if you not, Caesar, yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't yeah. want to shame anyone for their level of knowledge, but that's like one of the most famous historical events ever. So I don't know. I don't know if we need a spoiler warning, but yeah, you do assassinate Julius Caesar. So that's fine. I mean, luckily we just kind of put spoiler alert for everything that we do. Cause we do actually unpack and talk about everything we review. So like, I'm kind of like, look, if you haven't read the book or watched the movie or played the game, I'm, I'm kind of like, why do you want to listen to a podcast that is going to review them in depth. So that's kind of our thinking, right? <laughs> so I actually quite like listening to reviews of things before I read or experience them, because that way I know ahead of time that I'm actually going to enjoy myself when I go into it. But I know not everyone feels that way. I mean, but there's like a difference between like a broad 
review that doesn't spoil. And then there's like a, let's go in depth and break down all the things. Like, mm, I, I this is true. you know, I, I wouldn't say ours is just like a casual sort of surface level non-spoiler review. I mean, then we couldn't do our jobs and get into the history and the stuff. So I don't know. I wouldn't come to our show if I was like, I've never seen these before. That's just me. But anyway, yeah. So Megan, I heard you mentioned like about three or four questions. So why don't yes, you? There's so many. <laughs> yes. So Medjai, what are they, and how close is the game's depiction to what we know of them? So there's a bunch of answers to that. So the Medjai is the ancient Egyptian name for the Beja people, who are still a like a ethnic group of people that live in the southeastern desert of Egypt, so kind of border between Egypt and Sudan to the east of the Nile. This is a semi-nomadic group of people who have existed for as long as we have records. And during the New Kingdom, they basically became police officers. So, And the, the word later, I think it's the demotic word, is essentially the word police, like meja means policeman. And what happened there is this classic story where you have a centralized state-run civilization and then people at the periphery who are maybe non-agricultural or semi-nomadic or whatever and they're kind of a thorn in the side of the state because it gives your citizens a place to run to if things aren't going well and it also you have this this group of people who might occasionally experience some kind of strife or famine themselves and then they launch incursions into your territory so you have this really tense relationship what a lot of states throughout history have done in interacting with such people is hire them as a protective force of some sort. I mean, it's, if you, in a very cynical sort of view, all governments are very sophisticated protection rackets, and this is just one part of it. They basically become the hired muscle. So starting in the New Kingdom, these people were a police force. They are very Southern. And I think Bayek is a, is a Magi who's half Nubian. So he has like darker skin tone, which I think quite accurate and kind of interesting, like an interesting detail that they put in. The way he looks is not accidental. He, he looks like he could be Beja Nubian. I don't know that they were ever sort of this like secret service or Praetorian guard. I've never heard that anywhere else. I could be wrong, but the way it's portrayed in the game is that the, the Magi are servants of the Pharaoh and protectors of the Pharaoh. Not sure about that particular part. I think that's a bit of storytelling. But this is borrowed, presumably, from the 1999 Mummy movie, where the Magi are the protectors of the Book of the Dead and Imhotep's Mummy and all that. So it's kind of a, it's almost like a modern characterization of this ancient people that's kind of caught on and taken on a life of its own. Thank you. That is really cool. And it's nice to know that there is some historical kernel, really, I guess. Yeah, yeah there's something there. That. It's nice. Lexi. Okay, I'm trying to just figure out quickly like how deeply in the weeds because I mean I know I've talked to the, Christian about this game, so I'm trying to figure out like oh no, what's something I haven't asked that would still actually be relevant and sound good? I mean, okay, and and I'm trying, I'm desperately trying to avoid the mangoes. Let's just leave the mangoes. It's in my paper, by the way. If anybody wants to read that paper, I I do mention the mangoes in there. He does mention the mangoes? It's pretty cool. Peaches, though, we're talking about peaches. Because the, the, in the Apis Bull, in that whole sequence sea, where the Apis right? Bull is being, yeah, he's being poisoned with peach stones, which do contain like small amounts of cyanide. So if you were to eat a peach stone or if you were to eat enough of them, you would gradually be poisoned. That's accurate. They had peaches in Ptolemaic Egypt. 
I mean, I guess just for audience members who might not be aware, I remember you and I, I think, had a discussion once on the background world when creating it. It was very distracting that everyone was speaking modern Greek. Do you think it would have been possible to put something a little more accurate in? Would that have added to the game in the world or not really? Yeah, I mean, this is the one point where I become sort of a pedant about it because I think almost everyone disagrees with me on this. But I think the one detail for me that I would like to have seen the game do differently would be to use proper Egyptian language. So I don't want to get too much into the weeds with this, but basically when we look at hieroglyphic texts, we we don't have the vowels. We just have like the consonantal shells of the words and we deliberately fill them in with the E type vowel. So a word like sotum, that means to hear in when we're looking at hieroglyphic Egyptian, we pronounce it sejim. So we just take the raw sort of reconstructed consonants and just put e sounds in between them so that we can say it aloud. But also because pre-Coptic Egyptian didn't have that vowel sound in it, it's also markedly fake, right? Nobody could possibly think that you're speaking real ancient Egyptian because all of the vowels, it's just one vowel for one thing. And it's a vowel that the language didn't have in it. The language in the game, they actually used that Egyptological pronunciation as the like NPC dialogue. So when they say random Egyptian phrases, they use the Egyptological pronunciation. In Alexandria and Greek speaking areas, they use modern Greek, which to me, I found less problematic. Didn't they? Did they use? Is that what you're asking about, Lexi? They use modern Greek? Yeah, they use modern Greek, yeah. which took me out of it. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I can't comprehend modern Greek. So yeah, it didn't, didn't affect me as much, but I'm an Egyptian language guy. I mean, I don't know, but I had the same, you know, complaint for Assassin's Creed Odyssey just because I was like, well, we we know what ancient Greek sounds like. And I know it's hard because you can't really like talk in it per se, but like, I'm just kind of like, we know what it sounds like. Why are we saying modern things with like with modern pronunciations? I don't know. For me as a historian, that just bothered me, but. Yeah, I think the like I, I'm not one of these people who gets all up in arms about accuracy. I mean, obviously, that's what we've been kind of talking about this whole time. Like, I think there's cases where something can be sort of markedly fictional. It's not giving anybody bad information. It's just kind of exploring ideas. And I think that's totally fine. With language, because there is so little learning material for ancient Egyptian language, I think this was just a, a missed opportunity to have like hundreds of hours of, of spoken, reconstructed Egyptian that people who want to learn the language could really profit from, yeah. as opposed to something that's just totally artificial and unrealistic and can't really be used for anything. So, and you can say the same for modern Greek. There's plenty of sources for learning modern Greek. I'm sure it has a Duolingo, but ancient Greek is a little harder to find audio to listen to if you're trying to learn that language. So yeah, kind of a missed opportunity. Thinking about the, the languages, and you've already mentioned that there's obviously Greek and Egyptian speaking peoples, which kind of segues quite nicely into the, the different cultures that are present in the game, because you obviously have native Egyptians, you've got Greeks, you've got Romans. What do we know about the, the cultural milieu of the, the Ptolemaic periods? How would that have worked? Would the Greek Ptolemies have considered themselves Egyptian? Are they very firmly Greeks living in Egypt? What was going on there? Hard to say for any specific person, but I would guess that the Ptolemies largely saw themselves as Greek. They would have spoken each day in Greek. And even Cleopatra VII, one of her big claims to fame is that she was the first Ptolemaic ruler to learn the Egyptian language, but she wouldn't have spoken Egyptian in most of her days. She would have been speaking Greek with the people who worked with her. So I think they probably did think of themselves as Greek. When Caesar arrived to adjudicate this dispute between Cleopatra and Ptolemy, it's the Ptolemy the 13th. So... 
Thank yeah. you. Anyway, okay. He would have spoken to them in Greek, and it's it's not certain whether Cleopatra spoke Latin, and it's it's very unlikely that Ptolemy the Thirteenth did. I think he was like twelve years old or something, and also like a petulant child. I doubt he had been studying his Latin very diligently. So the majority of the conversations that we see in this game probably would have taken place in Greek. And that would have been the norm because, you know, there was this, after Alexander, there's this kind of pan-Hellenic culture that it impacts all over the Eastern Mediterranean at this time period. So Greek was the lingua franca, just the way English is today. You can kind of, you could walk into any city in the ancient Near East and approach somebody and ask them for directions in Greek, and they would probably be able to respond to you more or less effectively in that language. With that so. kind of cultural diffusion, and again, I know that different people have different specialities in the whole of ancient Egypt, would that diffusion have affected people living in their everyday like lives and world? Because at one point you have a Roman gladiatorial arena that has been set up in an Egyptian temple. Would that kind of thing have happened or would life for most Egyptians have run on as it had done previously? I mean, to the specific question of like a gladiatorial arena in a temple, that to me seems very unlikely. We do have later reuse of temples where they're, you know, they're turned into apartments, essentially. People live in them. So it's it's not impossible to imagine this kind of reuse. But I think at the time period we're talking about, this was this was really the beginning of Roman control over Egypt. I think for for a couple of decades there had been interactions with Rome. You know, Rome was this massive force conquering the entire Mediterranean and, and parts of Europe and North Africa. So they interacted plenty with Rome, but I think the the influx of Roman culture really came later. So if we're gonna look for something like gladiatorial arenas in Egypt. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing we're looking later than the time period of this game. So it, historically, there would have been a ton of interaction with Greeks. That would be probably the largest non-Egyptian group living in Egypt would be people from like Greek-speaking areas. And that goes back all the way to Naucratis in like the 6th century BC. So you have Greeks in, in Egypt. And it, even before that, you have scattered Greek presence. So that's the biggest. There'd also be people from all over. There'd be people from various parts of the Levant, all the way to Persia, probably people from other parts of Europe. I think we have we have Roman mummies from the Ptolemaic period where, you know, you have we have mummies of people who look like me from ancient Egypt, which is kind of remarkable how how well connected this place was. But the I think the primary fault line would be between native Egyptians and Greek elites that are somehow connected to the fact that you do have this like Greek hegemony that's controlling the country. The game makes a lot out of those things. I think there's some poetic license there, but I think it's fairly justified. So we don't know for sure what the everyday experience or conflicts were between native Egyptians and Greek speaking people. A lot of our evidence comes from very late documentary texts that almost no Egyptologist can even read. It's a very specialized subject even within this niche subject. But you definitely do see evidence for like social strife. Like these people did not always get along. And very often the the dividing line between them was linguistic and ethnic. So Greek, Egyptian. Thank you. I mean, I know a lot of the game's sort of history and, and its own mythology's lore is deeply ingrained. Just because we've had other games, this is not the first game. But one thing that I always wonder sometimes though is, obviously the order of the ancients or whatever whatever they want to be called in whatever game we're we're playing you know it, it's still predicated on the fact that there's a deep 
dark, shadowy cult-like group running things sort of in this underground manner. Were there any real, like, maybe secret or ancient cult-like groups in ancient Egypt that could have been like a historical basis that they just sort of rolled into the games lore already that they needed a secret group? That's a great question. The truth is, I don't know, but it's, it, you know, it's, it's funny, like the way the group is in the game kind of seems like unrealistic to me in terms of comparing it to real life. Like it feels almost like a conspiracy theory, you know, when people think that there are like lizard people running the world or whatever, right? Like it's, there's this huge shadowy cabal. My experience as an Egyptologist has been that people who are accused of belonging to some huge shadowy cabal often have no idea what you're talking about quite genuinely like i'm not covering up evidence for aliens trust me like if, i love aliens i want to believe like if there are any evidence that i could find of aliens helping out with the pyramids or visiting earth in ancient egypt i would be totally into that shit but yeah shadowy cabals are kind of hard to maintain just because people aren't very good at keeping secrets i think the controlling force the conspiracy this you know this evil group in ancient egypt was the ptolemies these were foreign invaders who took over the country and just blatantly extracted its wealth and, and sold it abroad at a discount so that they could make money faster and lived in probably the most ornate, fabulous palace that has ever been built on earth. I mean, it's hard to imagine what the Ptolemaic Palace at Alexandria would have looked like, but I think it probably puts the wait, Versailles and the Louvre and the Alhambra and you know these these really famous palaces, I think it puts them to shame. It would have been just completely absurd. Just a huge compound of the most ornate buildings that the world has ever seen. So that's kind of evil. Very often during the Ptolemies reign, people didn't have enough food to eat and they were still selling grain abroad to trade it for precious metals that they then hammered flat and used to decorate their bedrooms. And that's real. And we know that for a fact. So I think that's more realistic. But then, so I say this and this is definitely going to date this podcast whenever anybody hears it. But last night I saw Killers of the Flower Moon, which if you haven't seen, it's really, really good. And that is a real life absurd conspiracy of where like dozens or hundreds of people were murdered and the murders were covered up for years and years. And everyone who knew about it was in on the secret and, and helping to keep it. So apparently these things do happen. You know, who knows? We still don't know how many people were murdered by this conspiratorial group of white Oklahomans who were murdering the Osage to steal their oil rights. We still don't know how many people were killed to this day. And this, this happened about a hundred years ago. So if there was some shadowy cabal in Ptolemaic Egypt and they were all in on it and keeping a secret, man, good luck ever finding out. I mean, I can't believe I hadn't thought about that. Like, oh, maybe is there a historical basis? I mean, because luckily for the history side and the Caesar Cleopatra side, I'm like, okay, we have history we can actually work off of. But no, so it's, it definitely seems like they just inserted their own cabal just for, you know, game purposes. But no, I, it came up because I was like playing Odyssey. You're talking Odyssey. And I was like, well, I mean, we have like shadowy, like the Eleusinian Mysteries cult. I've been reading a lot of Aristophanes recently, and he was supposedly a member of that cult and when he tried to sort of put more about the cult into like one of his plays he actually like got in trouble and like got an ancient version of like a censure 
by the group and they were like, no, you cannot have this in your play. No, no, no. And so I was like, oh man, that's, that's insane. So I was like, okay, so Greece had some, some crazy like things going on. So that's where I could kind of maybe understand like the cult of cosmos stuff, but with not having experience with Egypt, I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Interesting. Well, there were certainly cults. Egyptian religion by nature is very secretive. Mm. To be a priest is to be initiated into, it's actually one of the terms for a type of priest is like the manager of secrets, essentially. The Harry Seshtah, I don't know exactly how to translate that, but yeah, it's like the person in charge of secrets. So this notion of cosmic religious secrecy going all the way forward to the Gnostics who pop up in Europe in the Middle Ages, you definitely do have these kind of like secret society cult or religious sect type things. Yeah, we, we have evidence for some of them. And then also there's just human nature. You can go pretty much anywhere in the world and find a group of people with their own esoteric beliefs secretly meeting together. So that definitely existed. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take us on a hard right and go from secret cults to visions of the underworld because this happens every single time you kill one of the members of the Order of the Ancients. You wake up in this like black, watery, shadowy place with the person that you've just killed and you have a brief argument with them and then Bayek touches them with a feather. The feather I am vaguely familiar with from Egyptian mythology, but is it not usually on a scale with someone's heart? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting choice. I mean, the place you end up, I don't know where it's supposed to be. I think it's a train station bathroom because there's like three centimeters of water on the ground at all times. And it's very dark. And there's just one other creepy person in there looking at you. The feather is definitely meant to be the feather of Ma'at, which is, so Ma'at is basically translated as truth. In the New Testament, it's the word that Jesus uses when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The word he uses is may, but that's the, the Coptic version of the word Ma'at. But it's also kind of a, it's a way of living. It's like a philosophy of right living, right? So it means truth, but it also has all these kind of cultural ideas attached to it. So we, Egyptologists normally don't translate it. We just say Ma'at. So this is the feather of Ma'at. And as you said, in these Book of the Dead scenes where you have like the weighing of the heart, you have this giant set of scales and you have the deceased person's heart on one side and you have the feather of Ma'at on the other and you have Thoth looking on and recording the results. And then you have Amit, this like crocodile, lion, hippo, chimerical beast that is ready to eat the heart of the deceased if he fails the test. So it's it's this symbol for sure. There's really nothing that I've seen like actually from ancient Egypt that where the feather of Ma'at is used as a sort of weapon or something, but he does. He like brushes them with it. And presumably that is their moment of judgment or being sent to the judgment. It's unclear, but it makes sense in the way that a clever abstraction often can. Like it, it fits with everything that I know about the Egyptian underworld. For instance, the water on the ground that I made a joke about is actually related to like the waters of Nui, these kind of cosmic waters that, oof, this is going to get, I don't want to go too far, but basically like in the Egyptian understanding of the cosmos, we live in a little bubble of air with like land at the bottom. And then on all sides of that is the infinite cosmic ocean. So, and it kind of makes sense because in ancient Egypt, basically any direction that you go, you hit water. You know, if you dig down far enough, you hit groundwater. If you go far enough in any direction, you hit an ocean or a lake of some sort. 
and then occasionally water and watery things come from the sky. So that it must be water up there too. And it's blue, etc. So that's as far as they knew, it made sense that if you go far enough, you just get to water. And then the Duat, like the land of the dead is either underneath the earth or sort of on top of the sky or both at the same time. If you imagine the cosmos as a sort of, I guess, a four dimensional Taurus or something like where you can simultaneously be. Thing. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm trying to picture. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm trying to visualize it. Yeah, it's weird. It's kind of like, I think of, think of it like the game Asteroids, where if you go off the edge of the map, you just come back on the other side. I think it's, it's kind of something like that. So there are all these waters in between that are, because you're kind of passing through the waters of the, the infinite waters. So in this place, he's in this kind of liminal space where there's no ground. He's just kind of standing on water or standing in water somehow. So they're in between, I guess, our world and the land of the dead. And then with the feather, he's saying, okay, you go to your judgment now. You have to go. So kind of kind of related to that, as I said in my very brief intro, Bayek's driving forces, like avenging his son's death, but there are also several statements he makes through the game about his son not being able to like move on into the afterlife and being trapped until that vengeance has been extracted. Do we have anything in ancient Egyptian afterworld beliefs that kind of necessitates vengeance or is it simply you have to be buried properly in order to let your soul move on? You know, it actually does. It kind of fits. I don't know about anything so specific, but we do have, we have letters to the dead. So people would write letters to their deceased relatives and then, you know, put together all of the Egyptian funerary culture, offerings, mummification, tomb building put it all together and you definitely have the notion of the hungry ghost. So the dead person who is, can be helpful or hurtful, but is kind of stuck in the world of the living. That idea is kind of clearly woven throughout all of this. That's where they pick up Hamu from, or his story and, and his story in relation to Bayek. I think the the core thing that they did with that, because we, we spoke a little bit about Aya too. Aya wants to make sure that nothing like this happens again. She's trying to play this big political game to create a better world in which things like this aren't as likely to happen. While Bayek is, he is on a quest for vengeance. He doesn't seem to care all that much about the Assassin's Creed. That's kind of secondary to his purpose. So I think that, I think it works on two levels. There, there is an Egyptian notion that this can be drawn from, but I think the main storytelling purpose is that it drives Bayek's entire plot. Right. He's driven by this quest for vengeance, and that's his character. Cool, thank you. I want to ask on a, on a non-serious note, did you enjoy, as an Egyptologist, being able to climb on and into and around the Great Pyramid? I loved it. I climbed all over everything. Jumped off of a lot of things. Sometimes crash and burn when I did. Yeah, I mean, these were the, the big things for me. You know, it's it's kind of weird. I'm not like a big pyramid guy, though. I'm more interested... It's hard to say, but like... For me, the big draw is the lived environment of ancient Egypt, and especially the way that it's portrayed in art. I think I was first drawn to Egyptology by Egyptian art and the way they depict things, especially the way they observe and capture nature in their art, I've always found really fascinating. It seems kind of random, but my, my favorite architect is Louis Sullivan, and he was also like an obsessive naturalist and designed the ornamentation that he used in these early modernist buildings. I love William Morris nature. illustrations for the same reason. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Right. This is a very captivating thing. So what I got most out of the game was actually 
I don't even know what to call it. The, the normal stuff, like walking down a road where there's animals that I see in hieroglyphic texts all the time, but they're moving and flying around. And I really loved the, the intersection of like the Egyptian natural world, which of course you can just go see today and it's, it's worth seeing. But then the interaction between that and the sort of Egyptian civilization, the built environment, the way buildings look, the way people dress, the way everything sort of works. I really like seeing all of those elements together in kind of one coherent whole, because that doesn't exist in our world. That's not something you can find, right? You can go on a hike in Egypt and go see nature and birds and all those kinds of things, but you're not going to find ancient Egyptian houses. You're going to find modern houses. So yeah, I think for me, it was very much all of these things coming together. And the big things like the pyramids and the temples, obviously I love those things, but those things are kind of still there. So I was more interested in the in the world, I guess. That's what really grabbed me. I mean, I love the small details, like the fact that only priests in ancient Egypt are the ones who wore the like leopard skin robes. The fact that like they had the priests yeah. in the game wearing them. It was a great small attention to detail. But I do want to touch on, thank you, Megan, for mentioning pyramids and stuff, because there are people obviously who play this game because of the, the pyramids and, and other kinds of cool things like that. I know that the game creators talked about modeling their Great Pyramid of Khufu and sort of like the interior after sort of the Houdin theory. Now, just I, I know it's like a whole thing and I know it's it's up for debate, so I don't want to get like too deep into the weeds, but it is a cool piece of history and it is an interesting stylistic choice to essentially build your game off of that specific one. So I'm wondering as an Egyptologist, if you could just quickly tell people like, what makes it different and why do we think they put that version in the game if it's controversial to Egyptologists? Yeah, it's, it certainly is controversial. I'm not entirely sure why, because I've never seen it presented other than as a hypothesis, which in science should be fair game. You can hypothesize anything. Although it does get, it gets a lot of, a lot of heat for being sort of out there or whatever, but it's like, well, it's true or it's not. I don't know. Let's, let's go look. So the, the Houdin internal spiral hypothesis is that instead of building massive ramps on the outside of the pyramids to bring all the stones to the top, what they did instead was sort of build the pyramid such that it had a spiral ramp inside of it as it was being built up. And they used that ramp to transport the stones to the top and build it all the way up. And then they just filled in the ramp on the way down, which is, I think, perfectly realistic. I don't see any reason they couldn't have done it that way. And it, it definitely deals with the problem if you're going to build giant ramps, you have to fill them with material that you have to source from somewhere. The consensus is that they used mud brick, which is what they also used for residential architecture and, and other buildings. So that's, they definitely could have done that. And then, of course, they would have just taken the mud bricks and reused them elsewhere or thrown them back in the river or whatever. You don't actually need an internal spiral, but it is a really, it would be an elegant way of solving the problem based on everything that we know. Probably the main mystery surrounding the Great Pyramids. So for anyone listening to this who you know isn't as constantly engaged with Egyptology as we are, you've probably heard over and over that nobody knows how they built the Great Pyramids. And whenever anybody says that, I, I always say like, what else would we know? Like we know more about building the Great Pyramids than we know about the building of the building I'm sitting in right now. Literally, we know the names of the people who did it, how many people there were, where they lived, what they ate. We know where they got the stones that they built it from, all of the different types of stones that they used. We know when they did it, who did it, why. We know just about everything we possibly could about building the Great Pyramid. The one big 
standout that people still kind of get stuck on is how did they literally transport the stones up that high? So we have plenty of evidence that even using just simple machines and a few people, you can move very heavy objects and, and build things with monolithic stones. That's actually not hard to explain. But then just the sheer number of stones they had. Yeah, I can't remember the number, but you know they had to place a, a two-ton block every three minutes or something, which just sounds very difficult. People often say it sounds impossible, but that's not true. It just sounds very difficult. This internal ramp would elegantly answer that question. So it's a cool hypothesis. It should definitely be ex explored further. And there's some circumstantial evidence. So there are, if you look at the Great Pyramid, now that the smooth white casing stones have been taken off and we're kind of seeing the, the internal structural stones, there are kind of little notches at regular intervals that look like they might have been weak points that were sort of covered over by the casing stones that have now been exposed and are kind of showing their weakness where the ramp had to turn a corner. So it, there's not as much structure there. That's a cool idea. Could be. I did interview the game creators and I think I asked them about that when I did. And their answer, which I wouldn't have expected anything less, their answer was basically like, we think this is a cool idea and we wanted a chance to explore it in a simulated environment. Just, uh, yeah, that's what it's for. I mean, if it's that simple, it's that cool. Cause I just remember being really shocked because I kind of recognized it, but like, I would say I wasn't familiar enough to really be like, oh, that is. So I remember I had to actually go into the discovery tour and then go to the pyramid. And then luckily in the tour, it did say like, in the game, we base this off of the Houdana theories very specifically. That's why it's here. And I was like, oh my gosh, they like went with it. They kind of went against the grain. And it's so interesting to see, again, like with all of my certain criticisms against the fact that it's not accurate versus something that like is using real egyptological research real stuff i was like it's so interesting that like this is a big thing that they could have kind of just fudged it on but like they didn't and they were like no we're going to use a real hypothesis and that alone i think was a cool way to get people maybe like me maybe not interested in more of the history because i definitely went on like a an internet rabbit hole tangent being like okay let me just look up everything i know about the houdana theory let me read more and like i found some great papers online and so if that was their intent to make people like sort of question or be like oh this is cool why well then they did their job well because i definitely did that yes yeah, it's, it's good for egyptology too you know if if anybody's thinking like how in the world did they build the pyramids well then you probably are a supporter of a bunch of nerds trying to figure it out, you know, which is what we need. Maybe not so much in Germany, but in the US, you definitely need as much like pro intellectualism as you can get to, to counter the prevailing winds. Oh, yes. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We're supposed to be, we're trying to figure stuff out. That's what we're all about. So, and this is a solid hypothesis. I think we should be investigating it. But then they found that after the game came out, they found this massive void with these neutrino detectors. That stuff, if you haven't looked into it, is super cool. They basically like laid all these flat plates in an underground chamber and recorded neutrinos, these subatomic particles that basically can pass through anything. Some of them pass all the way through the earth. And they created this weird sort of like Sort of spectral x-ray of the pyramid from inside and then using like models you can reconstruct what the shape must be to produce that pattern of dots that you find on the detectors and they notice that there's this big open space above the grand gallery and nobody knows what's in there i think they tried to put a camera in there recently and didn't get far enough and yeah it's a whole I mean, huge mystery. Yeah, there's so much unexplored. Like the game, even I think from what I remember going around, like in the pyramid and stuff, like they definitely gave a nod to like Nicholas Reeves theory, 
but like we will not know the answer to that because you know we can't nicholas reeves theory i don't know oh kara talks a lot about it in her book but also just generally it's the one that like there is a second chamber behind like the main one and that's actually where we're going to find like a whole other chamber that might have been for like the king or something and so to sum up a very long complicated theory everyone's kind of like well if we could just get the excavation permissions and then like bust through this wall here in the main gallery we could then have our answer to see is there something behind here because we think there is because based on like decades old scans or something when he was putting this together he was like yeah i think there's like a space here but like there's a bunch of stuff about like the egyptian government being like uh we're not gonna just like bust through a wall in this pyramid and so that's why it's still like a theory but yeah it's really interesting i mean for anyone who's like really curious that there might be another secret hidden chamber in the great pyramid that we have just not explored I encourage anyone just go look up like Nicholas Reeves Great Pyramid Theory. It's it's really interesting and like there's a lot. It's so much that I'm like I, I don't want to like get too into it because then we'll get lost in there. But yeah, it's it's cool. Get lost in a pyramid. Get lost in a pyramid. With the mummies. <laughs> it would be super cool to find that. I do understand why the Egyptian government wouldn't be too keen on just randomly blowing holes in walls of pyramids. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I see both sides of that. Yeah. Overall, like I like how the game handled the afterlife stuff, both in the elaborate cutscenes. Although, of course, there's that like one boss fight where you're supposed to fight like the great snake or whatever from this. Yeah, so I was like, okay, this is. I I just found I it annoying. That. So I, I hate was that like, boss fight so much. Yeah, so I was like, this is just annoying. This is not cool. But I generally like how the game handled it. And then, obviously, we're not talking about it in this episode per se, but. I will just mention for anyone who is interested in maybe playing this game now, there is a brilliant DLC released that actually lets you into four different realms of like conceptions of the afterlife or the underworld. And they're really cool. So this game just continues kind of the path that That they've been on. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really cool. We are about at the hour mark, so it might be worth wrapping up. I don't want to keep christian too long but i do want to ask you both is this a game you would recommend to gamers and or to history fans like you want to go first you want me to i can go first i would just say a very very enthusiastic yes i would definitely for gamers like if you're a gamer and you just sort of like open world rpg things where you can just like walk around a really cool environment and climb on shit yes (laughs) like yes need I say more. But for historians, though, yeah, this is something that I think Christian and I both spent a lot of time talking about. But I think after having a lot of conversations with a lot of academics and a lot of people kind of all doing reception studies, I think that the important takeaway is academics need to play more games. Like a lot of them don't, which I think is really sad because not only is it like a fantastic opportunity to immerse yourself in something and sort of rediscover that love you have seeing things in a different medium. But also I talk a lot about bringing different types of media into the classroom and making the learning experience more enjoyable for students as well. So I think if more academics saw like how well this game was, but also because it's not 100% accurate, it opens you up like you can have great discussions based off of, okay, let's talk about, you know, why does this building in this game, why do you think they did this? What should it have been like? Like there's there's room for both criticism and 
compliments. And so I think this is kind of a, the next barrier we really have to confront, which is, you know, how do we get gamers to see like there's inherent value in seeing, playing, using these games, both in the classroom and for themselves. So I would say it would be more important for me to recommend it to other academics more than just normal gamers who will just like games anyway. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's a super solid game if you like open world RPGs, if you like using stealth to do things. Assassin's Creed is where it's at. I mean, there are a lot of things that you kind of can't do without using stealth. Yeah, it's a good game. It depends on what kind of games you like. I always recommend it to students, though. I think to miss out on the opportunity to build a mental model of what it felt like to walk down the streets in this place that we'll never be able to go to, why wouldn't you take that opportunity? You're not going to remember the, the inaccurate things as though they were facts. What you're going to remember is the experience of being in this place and how you connect to it. And when you have to sit down and write that super boring paper that you don't want to write and no one wants to read, having a, a sort of joy in this subject can, can do a lot for you. And what about you, Megan? I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, I'm a huge fan of open world RPGs, uh, always have been. So having one set in the ancient world is an absolute joy for me. I really enjoy it. And I, I enjoyed Assassin's Creed Odyssey for much the same reason, being able to run around and jump on things and talk to all the different people actually and like hear daily life, kind of like you were saying, Christian, going on around you as you're walking is, it's really special. I, I enjoy it. I definitely think there's a lot of value there. Are you likely to play it a lot? Yes. Yes, I think. Yes. So for those, we should have made this clear at the beginning. I've not played the whole game through. I did actually start it. And then in preparation for this, I watched a YouTube video that kind of takes you through the whole plot. But I enjoyed the gameplay I've been through. I have enjoyed watching someone else play it, which is not something I normally do. I don't usually watch gameplay videos. But I really enjoyed it. So I yeah, definitely need to go back and complete the game. Nice. I will call it a day. Thank you both so much. This was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah. Lexi, audience, I'll see you all next week. Woo! Bye! Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review. And you can also follow us on social media at The Reading Party Podcast. If you'd like to leave us a book or movie suggestion, then email us at thereadingpartypod at gmail.com. See you next week. Mm -hmm.